find your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. All right. Can you believe it, man? Fall is finally upon us. And I, I love this time of the year. Although I was out doing some yard work yesterday and it was 100 degrees. And I'm like, come on. I, I still think fall and cooler temperatures. But that will come if you're new here in a month or two or something like that. So fall will come. But, you know, with fall, there comes all these routines. You know, like if your family, you got kids. You got kids going off to school. You got the bus routes going. Maybe you've dropped your kid off at college. You got a bunch of college kids coming back. By the way, welcome college kids. Glad to have you. And, and there's just routines that start happening. There's football teams that are practicing. You got the band. They're going. They're working on their routines, dance team drills. I mean, and it's, there's a rhythm to it. And it's really interesting. You know, like this is a season that some of you I know that are really looking forward to because football is just around the corner, Right. And I know that some of you ladies are really excited about that, but not half as excited about some of, like some of us guys, right? And when you see a football game, some of you are planning to watch one or two this season, right? Or each day, right? Depending on kind of where you're at and your family. When you see football taking place, you see intentionality. When you see a marching band out onto that field, let me assure you they've been practicing. They've got an idea of what they want to accomplish, and they have some general idea of how to do it. And so they're out there because they know what they want to accomplish and how to go about it. I mean, could you imagine watching a football game where the players just decided to do whatever they wanted whenever they wanted? That'd be like total chaos, right? Or if the marching band just said, you know, we have nothing planned. We're just going to make it up as we go. I mean, that'd be just a cacophony of noise, people running out on the field. It's like, come on, that makes no sense. Well, you know, we would expect that you're going to find intentionality at a football game. But do you know that God expects intentionality in his church? He wants his people engaged in his mission. In fact, that is the beauty of 1 Timothy, because he tells us exactly the priorities of an intentional church. And we've been making our way through this book. We're now at the final verses of 1 Timothy. And these verses are critical because they highlight for us that if you're going to have an intentional church, It needs to be made up with intentional believers. I mean, really, the spiritual health of Fellowship Bible Church is only as healthy as the individual people in it. And so you might be asking, like, what is an intentional Christian? What does an intentional Christian look like? What are the indicators? What are the priorities? Am I one? If you have that question... That is answered to us, answered in the final verses, beginning in verse 17 in chapter 6. This morning, I just want to give you three indicators to reveal to you what an intentional Christian really looks like. And first is found in verses 17 through 19, and that is, you will always find that intentional Christians are guiding believers into a rich relationship with God. They invest themselves in the spiritual development of other people. And that's exactly what you find Paul counseling Timothy to do. Timothy, I want you to be intentional. I want you to instruct. I want you to invest your life in the lives of other people. And he models this by giving a critical subject in which he's supposed to do it. He says in verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. He's saying, Timothy... Because I am shaping you and I'm discipling you to be intentional, you need to instruct 
those who are rich on how to live. Now, if you are thinking like, okay, I'm not rich, that doesn't even apply to me, let's talk about this. First of all, I want to I break away the idea that like, if you've got money, somehow that's bad, okay? For instance, you'll find people in the Bible, Abraham, uh, you've got Joseph, Job, David, Solomon. These were extremely wealthy individuals. In the New Testament, you've got Lydia, Dorcas, you've got Philemon. These are people that had significant means. And they didn't get them illegally or in a, in a non-moral fashion. God is the one who blesses with resources. And there were wealthy people in the Roman Empire. And most of the wealthy people actually gained their wealth through have, being landowners. And so you'd have tenant farmers, but also you had the produce from all the crops. And you, may, you could make a lot of money. But also in the Roman Empire, there were merchants that were quickly gathering huge financial resources and much wealth, as well as ship owners. And so you had this rising group of people that had a lot of wealth. Ephesus, that's where Timothy is, that's where he's pastoring, is a port city. You've got some really wealthy people there. He is saying, instruct those who are rich in this present world. In verse 10, remember in chapter 6, he was, saying, he was addressing those who would like to be rich and warning them of what money can do to you. Verse 17, he's talking to those who are rich. Now, if you're going, Phew, well, everything he's going to say doesn't apply to me. You know, I'll just tune out here for the next 5, 10, 15 minutes here. Actually, let's find out if you're rich. Uh, if you have an, a change of clothes, so meaning like every time I see you, you're wearing maybe something different, then you're going to be rich. If you, if you spent your night last night in something a little bit better than a canvas tent or a lean-to, you're rich. Um, if you have no concern about how you're going to eat today, you're wealthy. That was, in the time, about 2,000 years ago, if you, if you were basically had any of those checked off where you weren't worried, you've got resources, you've got an extra change of clothes, you were rich. In today's vernacular, if you have discretionary income, you are wealthy. I would say that probably almost everyone in this room would be considered rich, or at least how he's describing it. And so he's saying, you need to inform and warn those who are rich of some particular dangers. That really applies to all of us. And the first one he says is he says, verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. He's saying, you want to make sure that they don't develop a big head. The word has the idea that you're thinking lofty, having an exalted opinion of yourself, that you are haughty. And so let me ask you this question. Do you think having money and having wealth can change you? Well, a lot of us would like to say, you know, no, I mean, if I had lots of money, that wouldn't change who I am. But I want you to know, based on even research, that that is actually not the case. I wanna, I've read this article. I, I find it alarming. Some of you are going to be bothered by it. But in 2012, in the Boston Globe, they actually ran this article that was based on all this extensive research to try to figure out, does money change people? Does having wealth change you? And this is what the article reported. As a mounting body of research is showing, wealth can actually change how we think and behave, and not for the better. Rich people 
have a harder time connecting with others. They are showing less empathy to the extent of dehumanizing those who are different from them. They're less charitable and generous. They are less likely to help someone in trouble. They're more likely to defend an unfair status quo. And if you think you you would behave differently in their place, you'd probably be wrong. These aren't just inherited traits, but they're developed ones. And money, in other words, changes you. And they go and give all this research. So at the University of Minnesota Carlson School of Management, they actually came up with this from their research. And it's the idea of that even if you anticipate getting money, it's called priming. Like if you think you're in for a windfall, you're going to get a bonus. It has this effect on you. It makes people less friendly, less sensitive to others, and more likely to support statement like, statements like some groups of people are simply inferior to others. At Cal Berkeley, their research shows this, that wealthier people tend to be less compassionate towards others in a bad situation than people from lower class backgrounds. And so Paul is saying this, you want to warn those who are rich, in our case, that'd be all of us, to not become conceited because that's what wealth can do to you. And the second thing he warns them of, notice what the text says, is to not be the conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. There is something about the human psyche that finds your sense of well-being on assets and having wealth and having money. And so, you know, I've lived where I didn't have any money. And 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 it's kind of troubling. I mean, you feel like you're just about, you know, two days away from disaster. But the problem is with resources, financial resources, is that it becomes like an alternative Messiah. And it's alluring. Our culture reinforces this idea that if you've got money, you have whatever you need for life and for happiness. And it's an alluring Messiah. And there's many people that give all of their life to the accumulation of wealth. The problem is it is going to fundamentally change you for the worse. And that's why he writes, instruct them not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. If you are not fixing your hope on God, then you have some other little G.O.D. in your life. And it likely is wealth and it is going to fundamentally change you. It is going to distort your soul. You will not be as God intended. And so what happens if you are trusting in your wealth? When you, when you sit back and go, I must be okay because I have this in my bank account, or I've got this IRA going, or my 401k looks like this, or my job is producing this kind of income, if money has become your God, it leads to anxiety, self-centeredness, distraction, arrogance, uncertainty, and kind of a restless greed, kind of like a hoarding mentality. On the other hand, if God, Yahweh, is the one that you worship, that you really have a life oriented toward him, you're fixing your hope on him, it leads to peace, service to others, satisfaction, humility, certainty, and contentment. So you want to be certain certain that you're not putting your hope on something that is ultimately going to fail you. So notice what he says. He says, fix your hope on who? God. And then here's, here's the rest of the verse that might totally shock you. Who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Do you see that? Like some of you like never actually knew that the word enjoy is in the Bible, you know, and that God actually, he wants you to what? 
He wants you to enjoy that which he has richly supplied you. And, and you know, you're like, whoa, the word enjoy? Yeah. In fact, the book of Ecclesiastes, it's one of the themes that you're to enjoy God, you're to enjoy life, your spouse, your food, your work. God actually wants you to find joy in them because you're finding, you're finding your joy in who gave them to you. In fact, if you do not find enjoyment in God, you're really not able to enjoy the things of this world. Ecclesiastes 2.24 and 25 says this, There is nothing better than for a man to eat and drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. And then he says in verse 25, For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? You can't enjoy what you have apart from learning to enjoy God. That is because God has designed it that we are dependent upon him and that we delight in him. And so how is it that you could actually really enjoy what God has given you, whether it be your home or your apartment, um, your car, your clothes, your food? Let me, let me just tell you how you can enjoy it. You enjoy it by being thankful to God and glorifying him, looking to worship him as a way of life, not just something you do on a Sunday morning. So try it this week, even this or after service. When you walk into your house or you sit into your car, and you, and you see these things, thank God for them. Don't make them your hope, your joy, the, the thing that you're really fixed on, but have the idea that, wow, God, you've been so gracious to me, and you've given this to me. Howard Hendricks, a, a professor that just passed away at Dallas Theological Seminary, in one of his books, he writes of a very wealthy student that he had, and this kid came from a lot of money. He lived in like a little palace, apparently, and, and uh, yet... The kid was a a very godly young man, and he told him that his parents kept telling him over and over, everything that we have and in our home, it's either a tool or an idol. It's either a tool to be used or it's an idol that's going to try to demand worship, and we're going to be focused and fixed on it. Friends, that's how it would be for us. Now, let me just tell you, from a perspective of a parent, And if you're a parent, you totally know what I'm talking about. I love it when I see my kids just enjoying their life. I love it when they're enjoying talking, playing a game, shooting hoops, having the friends over. I mean, we had so many kids over last night in our driveway, I couldn't count them all when I drove in. I'm like, oh my. But I loved it. They were all having fun. And the neighbors didn't act like they were too disturbed. There was no police car in front of my house, but they were enjoying themselves. I love it when my family can just enjoy a meal. And, you know, like we're talking, uh, there's lots of humor that goes on to our house. It's just, it's awesome. There's just something inside like, this is so good. And it's kind of like, you know, like at Christmas time or at their birthday, and like they kind of tear into their presents and they're excited about that and they have joy. Uh, from the heart of a father, man, I just love it. I love to see my family enjoying themselves. You need to know that our Heavenly Father He loves to see you and I enjoying him and even the gifts that we've given him. We oftentimes get so fixated on the gift that we forget the giver. But when we really learn to enjoy the giver, that God is the one who has given us these things, then we actually can enjoy the gifts that he's given. And we thank him. And our life is different. 
And when we learn to find our joy and contentment and gratitude in God, it frees us up to be the people that God intended. And verse 18 then becomes a reality. But the Christian faith is really a relationship of joy in Christ that gets translated into every aspect of our being. And so he says in verse 18, because you're an intentional Christian, Timothy, tell the rich, verse 18, instruct them to do good. I want them to be doing good, but it comes from a heart that's enjoying God and actually enjoying even the things that he's given you. He gave them to you. And so he says, let me tell you what doing good looks like. It means to be rich in good works. You see, when you actually enjoy God, you actually want to engage and do good for others. And sometimes we think like, well, that means I just got to give money to people. Not necessarily. Doing good to others oftentimes just means being just with them or doing something for them. For instance, if you want to see what this looks like, right after church, from 2 to 5 this afternoon, we got a bunch of folks going to Estella Maxi apartment comp- apartments, okay? This is inner city. And there's going to be a bunch of kids, and they are hungry for love. They are hungry for Christ's love. They come from situations that, in, for the most part, are very different than the, what you experience. And you just go spend some time with them. You just show up there. All you have to do is show up there and smile and say hi and start to engage. And when you actually enjoy God, it frees you to actually engage. Or our, our youth, and it's open to anyone in the church, we on a regular basis, we go down to my brother's keeper, and you hang out and just spend some time with those who are homeless. You lead them in a devotional. We sing some songs. We pray. They, they're overwhelmed. And it means so much. Because your life then starts to become a conduit of blessing. Just being kind to your neighbors. Looking for opportunities to be a blessing. That's what he says. When you learn to enjoy God and even the, enjoy the things that he's given, then you're able to be rich in good works. To be generous. This has the idea that you have an open heart. When you're, when you're hoarding, when, when your things are your idol, when your money is like stuff that you just got to keep to yourself, you're not generous. And you don't know the joy of generous living that God is seeking to develop in all of his children. And he says, notice what else he says, and that you're ready to share. There's a willingness that when you give of yourself, your time, Maybe you buy something for someone. You do it with a heart that cares, that you love these people, that you're sharing in that experience. You don't want to be some sort of like modern day Scrooge. And just like, and if you do give a little bit, if you do it with a really cold heart, because God wants you to be a blessing. He wants his love to be flowing through your life. He wants you to understand that everything you've got, he's given you. He wants you to be a steward and a manager entrusted with this for this life, to provide for your family, to provide for others, to provide for the the advancement of the kingdom of God. Winston Churchill is the guy who said this, we make a living by what we get, and we make a life by what we give. You saw some of these ads. In 2006, the Ad Council began this campaign called uh, the almost don't almost give campaign, and they had these series of advertisements that they gave. One of them was showed this man, and he was learning uh, how to walk. You know, he had these crutches, and it said this. You got the narrator, and he goes, 
This is a man who almost learned to walk at a rehab center that almost got built by people who almost gave money. And then there was this pause. Almost gave. How good is almost giving? About as good as almost walking. Then there was another ad that they had. The narrator said, this is Jack Thomas. And you see this man, and he's all curled up on the sidewalk. He's got this, he's like laying on rags, and he's got this bed sheet over him. He's obviously a homeless individual. And they say, this is Jack Thomas. Today, someone almost brought Jack something to eat. Someone almost brought him into a shelter. And someone else almost brought him a warm blanket. And Jack Thomas, well, he almost made it through the night. Or then another one. They have this older woman. She's staring out the window. And the narrator says, this is Sarah Watkins. A lot of people almost helped her. One almost cooked for her. Another almost drove her to the doctor. And still another almost stopped by to say hello. They almost helped. They almost gave of themselves. But almost giving is the same as not giving at all. And every one of those ads ended with this statement. Don't almost give. Give. You see, there is a difference that giving makes. Now, I would never give out of guilt because that's not how God motivates his people. He motivates to give out of love. It's a love in response to who he is. Let me just tell you what this looks like in our home. Now, I think most of you know that I became a Christian when I was at college at the great University of Oregon there. Okay, that bastion of all intellectual greatness and spiritual depth. Okay, I'm there. I, after I became a Christian, I'm going to a church and I, and I notice that people like give money and they put envelopes and checks and baskets. And I was like, well, you know, OK, I'm, I'm, I can understand that you're kind of giving. But it was explained to me that your giving is an act of worship. And so you just give of resources that you have. Now, I was really broke in college. OK, like I had no money. Like, even a quarter to call Karina was hard for me, okay? I had no money. You can check with Karina how broke I I was in college. But I learned that there is something beautiful about worshiping God with your finances. It's like, this is what I've got, and so maybe I don't have a whole lot. I was working hard, putting myself through school, but something about just giving back to God is an expression of worship. And even today, that's a pattern that's carried through. And 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 I'm not just like, okay, well, this is... This is Grant, and he's doing it great. No, I'm just telling you what it looks like in my life. You know, do you guys remember checks? Remember? Yeah, we still, okay, we, we do a check method, you know? And you write this check out. And yeah, maybe it's some, you might consider it sacrificial, but it's a joy. And when we give, it's like we, like I try to intentionally just take a minute and say, God, this is an expression of worship to you. Thank you for what you've blessed me with. And we write that check, and we give. That's a worship. And when we, in the Sunday morning, when we give, it is to be an expression of worship. God, I want you to be exalted in this. You are gracious to me. Maybe you're in, doing your financial stuff online. So when you see your money given to like the church or a missionary or a mission organization, what you do is you take a minute right there and you just thank God and express, I want this to be worship unto you. I want you to be first place in my finances. I simply want to be a conduit of blessing. And if you want to learn how to live well and manage the resources that you've been given, I mean, we've got a fellowship family started up this fall that once again is just going to help you understand the fundamental principles of how to be a good manager 
of your resources. That's what you are. You can't take them with you. They're temporary. He's entrusted you likely with much. You want to be a good steward. In fact, just check out our fellowship families and make sure you're a part of that one if you don't even know what I'm talking about and you want to learn the joy of being a good steward. And he says, verse 19, you want them to live this way. And when they do, verse 19, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. There is something about us learning to be dependent upon God here. We're we're giving graciously to him that equates to eternal joy and eternal worship. Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is. You know, and where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. If your heart is really for the glory of God, that is going to have an effect on how you handle your money. Because Christianity affects every aspect of our life. Our relationships, our parenting, how we handle trouble, issues of forgiveness, communicating with a relationship with our spouse and with our finances. And so he says, instruct them because they are storing up for themselves eternal treasure, a good foundation for the future. There is something about what we give in this life that gets translated from the transient to the eternal when we give to the worship of God. And he says, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. He's not counseling and saying these people need to become Christians so they can actually really lay hold of eternal life. What he's doing is he is urging Timothy to counsel his people, don't live for the plastic stuff of this life. Experience the eternal life that is found in Christ because that is life indeed. Riches have a way of clouding our thinking. And you need to know this. Jesus made it crystal clear. You can only have one master in your life. You're either going to have, it's either going to be money or it's going to be God. But you can't have two masters. You can't serve both. Which one will it be? And I just want to tell you, there's no greater joy than just living life unhindered and to say, God, just have your way with me. Now, I want to also tell you this about money. It's a tool, but money is also like a drug. And and you'll find this. Money can give you like this hit, like this temporary little high that you have money and and you're just like, whoa, I feel really good about my life because I have these resources or I just can shop and I can just buy things. And you just temporarily go through life where you just take this time just to buy things because it kind of relieves this pain that you've got in your soul and you try to find satisfaction in the things that you're attaining or putting in your little bag or you're bringing home, but they can never satisfy because it's only found in Christ. And I just want to tell you, thank you for being an intentional church. About three weeks ago, I told you we're a little behind budget. And I just want you to know the giving has been tremendous. Because you and I, we're seeing God do a work in our heart where it's all about him. And just as a pastor, I want to thank you. Did you want to be an intentional Christian, though? Intentional Christians, you know what they're doing? They are guiding believers to a rich relationship with God. And if you're new here to fellowship, that's what we're all about. We want you to experience the richness of Christ. Let me tell you something else about intentional Christians as he winds this letter down. Intentional Christians are also guarding the faith. Notice what he says, verse 20. 
O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. He says, Timothy, make sure you guard the faith. The faith is that which we believe about God. It's revealed in his word. And he says, Timothy, make sure you guard it. How do you guard the faith? You treasure it. You value it. You find it to be valuable and you look to pass it on to others. Remember what Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.2? And the things that you've heard from me and the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. If you value the faith, you're going to protect it. You're not going to let it be eroded by people that are going to want to rip it apart. Or like to say, yeah, well, did God really say that? Or really, the Bible is not from God. It's just men and their religious works and and their thoughts about God. He says all of that worldly and empty chatter, you want to avoid it. You want to guard it because you're treasuring it. It's kind of like basketball. You know how it is like you go to the Ferrell Center and maybe you're watching a, a women's basketball game. And you know, like when Odyssey Sims brings that ball down the court, you know what I'm talking about? And what is she doing? She is guarding that. She has placed her body between the opponent and, and the ball. And she is not letting anybody get to that ball. And what would happen, though, if she didn't guard the ball? Like, what happens if she was just kind of dribbling it right out there in front, right there, you know? And, and what, well, the crowd would go, what? Ballistic, right? Wow! You know? And you, can you see the coach? Mulkey, she's pulling out their hair. You're like, what are you doing? And she's doing there. What if she actually just set it down there? Like, okay, we'll see what happens with that. Man, we'd be in an uproar, right? We'd be jumping up and down. We'd be, some of us might be really upset. We'd be yelling at the top of our voice. Why? Because we know in basketball, you've got to what? You've got to guard the ball. You've got to treat that ball with a lot of respect. And you want to make sure that you pass it off and you make good, crisp, clean passes so that your player gets the ball. We know that's really important, and that is really important, right? Yeah? Yeah, I see some of you basketball players. Oh, yeah, that is so important. Let me ask you, are you as concerned about the faith as you are a basketball? You know what the ball is, don't you? The ball is this book. What are we going to do with the Bible? Are we handling it carefully? Let me tell you, if you're looking for a church, the most important measure of a church is not how large it is, how good its fellowship is, how clever or interesting your pastor is, how good the music is, what the grounds look like, how respected it is in the community. The most important part of a church is what they do with the Word of God. Do they hold it close? Do they interpret it accurately? Do they take it into context? Or are you just kind of ripping verses here and there and kind of making whatever you want to say and just putting it out there for the people? Are you starving your people because you're just keeping them entertained? Or are you feeding their souls with the pure milk of the word? What will it be? But the most important part of a church is what they do with the word of God. And that's why Paul is saying, you want to be intentional, Timothy. That's because you need to guard what has been entrusted to you. And this is banking terminology, entrusted. It's a deposit. God put it in you. You make sure you pass it on to others. And if you're an intentional Christian... That's what you do. And God has made it real clear, I don't want you adding or subtracting this book. Deuteronomy chapter 4, he puts a huge warning. Don't toy with this. You know how the book of the, the Bible ends? The final book, last page, you might want to look at it. He writes out and says, make sure you don't add 
or subtract. Because if you do, you know, you're going to end up like this. Verse 21, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Intentional Christians take the word seriously. And right now, in kind of evangelical Christianity, there is a huge trend to have an emotional, experiential-based faith. They wouldn't deny the word. It's just that they're not in it. And it's all about experiences that you can conjure up or emotions that you can feel. And what it does is it creates a form of legalism where it's all about performance or experiences that you've had. And if you don't have those experiences, then you're kind of looked down upon. God wants us to base our beliefs on the Bible. Do you know uh, Harvard University? Familiar with that? Do you know its origins? Okay, all the way back in the 1600s. It's actually named after a pastor. John Harvard was a pastor uh, when this school was just getting started. When he died, Harvard left his entire library and half of his money to this new fledgling school. And this school had a purpose. In fact, I'll read you from the original school's rules and precepts, the standard for admission and study. Okay, this is precept number two if you're going to study at Harvard. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. John 17:3, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. You think they're still running that as a qualification to get into school? Probably not. Is Harvard a good school? Very much so. You can learn a lot there. But what has happened is they actually have moved away from its original intent. Do you know the original intent of Harvard was to actually train pastors? They offered a three-year degree in arts, literature, and sciences because they felt that was a fundamental foundation to move on to theology and the development of pastors. Well, they moved completely away from that. They even had on their original seal in Latin, Veritas Christo et Ecclesia. It says, truth for Christ and the church. Well, what happened is that wasn't working so much anymore. So you know what? They took off all of it, but they left the word Veritas. So now the seal just says Veritas, which means truth. But in today's postmodern world, even that has been reduced to nothing. And so, so goes the logo. So goes the seal, so goes the school in terms of its original intent. And what happened? There's some people that didn't guard the faith. They let it slide. It happens in schools. Let me tell you where else it happens. It happens in churches. They are just a shell of what they were originally intended to be. Who is God looking for and looking toward? Isaiah 66, verse 2, those who tremble at my word, yet actually take God seriously. That's who he's looking for. And so we guard the faith by trusting it. And finally, if you're going to be an intentional Christian, you need to be growing in grace. Notice how the book ends. You might just kind of breeze past it. Grace be with you. Oh, just a little signature end. Done. Actually, we are to grow in grace. When you talk about grace, it's receiving favor, especially from God, that is unearned and undeserved. And we are to grow in this relationship with God that we realize that we've been given salvation, forgiveness of sins. Everything we have, 
God is the one who's blessed us with it. And so when we, when we actually realize this and we're thankful for it, it's like our lives grow, and lives grow best in the garden of grace. If you're involved in an environment that's all about do's and don'ts and a list of regulations, you actually, if you find yourself dying inside, because we were actually intended not only to be saved by grace, we actually believe that, right? Saved by grace, amazing grace. We actually are meant to live and thrive in the grace. We're become grace-oriented, Christ-oriented individuals. And it frees us up from being people that are always comparing ourselves, like what you look like or how much you have or what kind of car you're driving. You actually can enjoy people and you can enjoy God. Grace is the one that frees us up to be generous. It, grace is what frees us from living under the guilt of our sins. God doesn't want you always just perpetually like, oh, I'm such a loser. Oh, I did that 15, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, and you're just under this huge weight. He wants you to know the life and the forgiveness and the strength of Jesus. He loves you. And if you're an intentional Christian, you're always growing in grace. And friends, that's the vision of our church. Like a tree, we're growing deep in Christ. He is shaping our character, reaching out in our relationships and our ministries and our careers. We are growing to the glory of God and trees and Christians grow best in the soil of grace. And so an intentional church consists of intentional Christians. So let me just ask you, what is it that you're deciding right now that results that this week will look differently because you're intentionally living for him? The degree that you and I are living intentionally for Christ by the strength of the Spirit is the degree that our church is being everything that God desired. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for the power of your word. Thank you how you clearly spell it out. Thank you for the body believers here at Fellowship, a church that is growing in grace. and There's a Christ-centeredness to us because we want you exalted and we love you. And so we pray, Lord, and thank you for your tremendous grace, your blessings in our life. May we just simply be conduits of your blessing to know the joy of your life. And as we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, this morning... I am so glad that you are here. You have the opportunity of witnessing something very profound. And at this time, I'm going to invite Chow Wu to come up forward here. Chow, if you want to come up here. I think some of you have met Chow. Uh, You hopefully had an opportunity to interact with him. Uh, Chow is from China. He has been here studying at the university uh, at Baylor here under Dr. Kwong Lee. You need to hear what God has been doing in this young man's life. So, Chow, you want to just kind of share with us what's going on in your life? All right. I was an atheist since the time I can remember. Although I'm a big fan of history and ancient religion stories, in my mind, all the record about God was just ancient people's ignorance and lack of knowledge. And Christianity is the same to me. I read some Bible stories from books in elementary school, but I only regarded them as nice stories. There were several big churches in my hometown, but I thought they were places for old, weak, and not well-educated people. Comparing with them, I chose to trust myself. Through my intelligence and hard working, I could find a way to solve problems in my life and achieve my goals. 
Everything in my life went very well. But at the same time, as I grew up and knew more about the society, I sometimes felt sad and disappointed. Although China is growing strong very quickly, people are becoming richer in material life. The traditional Chinese virtue is decaying. People are using every effort to seek power and money, satisfying their personal desires, and the society is lacking in love and caring for each other. And influenced in this environment, many young people's view on world and life is twisted. In 2011, I was awarded a support from Chinese government and started a two-year visiting study at Baylor University. I thought it is not a good idea if I only spend the whole time on study and research. I wanted to take advantage of this opportunity to improve my English, to feel American culture, to know their working and living style, and to get a special experience in my life. And going to church seemed to be a very good choice in achieving these goals. I was soon attracted by these Christians. First is their attitude to other people. Even to me, a stranger, a foreigner, a non-Christian, they are so friendly, giving me a lot of care and help. I felt love and warmth in their hearts. Another thing caught my attention is that these people are always happy and have peace, even when they are suffering from great difficulties in their lives. These are the characters I don't have, and I want you to own them too. With the interest on Christianity, I began to read the Bible when I had nothing to do. I also got some more idea about Jesus and Christianity from the sermon pastor gave, the Sunday school, and so on. During this period, I was touched several times. But as a student for many years in science and engineering, I knew the feeling is unreliable. I only trusted the truth, and I had to find a reason whether to accept it or reject it. I began to read the gospel more, more seriously, and more and more questions kept challenging me. If Jesus is crazy, who thought himself is God, why are his words so reasonable? Even touched me a non-Christian's heart. If he was a liar, why did he die for the lie? How can he tell people to be faithful? Why so many people, including lots of smart and distinguished scientists and artists, choose to trust him? If he was dead, why his disciples who lost the faith when he was arrested were willing to die for preaching his words after his crucifixion? I could not help but thinking on this day and night, and suddenly I realized that I could not deny it. I made the decision to become a Christian. I trust that Jesus died for me at the cross to pay for my sins and purchased a place for me in heaven. I also trust that he will guide my life as long as I yield my life to him. I know it will not give me the wealth, but I enjoy the joy and peace it gives to me. I know in future, a lot of people in China will see me as a weird person. But I would like to bring the same friendly warmth I felt here to them. And this is my testimony, Xiao Wu, in Waco, Texas, USA.